So today we have our second installment of our new uh, sermon, short sermon series here, uh, starting off the year with the topic of sacrifice uh, as we cover selected passages out of the book of Philippians. And so day today we're talking about sacrifice, uh, that is the beauty of sacrifice, and that's what we'll be looking at today. So I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to Philippians. Uh, we'll jump a few verses from last week into chapter 2. Today we'll be covering verses uh, 1 through 11. I'm going to just start off by reading verses 1 through 4. And if you wouldn't mind standing for the, read of God, word, the, read, the reading of God's word, I would appreciate it. So reading from the ESV, uh, if you in your Bibles, you can have that. So it says this here. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only, I'm sorry, let, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Brothers and sisters, the word of the Lord, let me pray and ask for his blessing on our time. Father, we thank you. Uh, we come to you, Lord, and then we ask, Lord, that you would be with us today. Uh, and we pray that you would work in our hearts. Uh, that inward part, that you would take the word like seed and sow it uh, into good soil. We pray our hearts are good soil this morning, Lord. Pray that they're soft and receptive. We pray that the distractions of the of the cares of life are removed so that we can focus upon you. Uh, and I, I thank you, Lord, for this time. I pray that your spirit would work because we really need him to minister in these moments uh, as because it doesn't work without him. And I ask that, Lord, not because there's any worthiness in me for you to do that, but it has solely to do with your own character. The character that is so clearly revealed in Scripture that you delight in having mercy upon those who trust in you and call upon your name. And so we here as a gathered body call upon your name, ask that you would be with us, ask that you would minister to us, that something that maybe one thing that is said throughout this message would minister to some aspect of our lives so that we may know that we've connected with you. We pray these things for your glory and for your honor. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So today, I want to open today's message by sharing with you two stories, two stories, uh, and then after that, simply ask your opinion about those two stories. So share two stories and then ask your opinion about them. The first story uh, is recorded. It's a news event, both true stories that happened in life, both taken from the news, uh, recorded in different places. But this first one that I want to draw from, uh, it was recorded in the New York Times, and I just want to share it with you. Uh, and, and this is what happened. It, this happened back a few years ago, about 10 years ago, on the 2nd of January in the year 2007. Uh, there was a gentleman by the name of Wesley Autry. He was uh, 50 years old. Uh, he was a construction worker at that point in his life, but he had served in the Navy and had been a veteran. Uh, and on this particular day, he was waiting downtown uh, at the local at the at 137th Street and Broadway in Manhattan at 1245. Some of you are familiar with New York. I'm not as familiar with it, but that's where he was at, waiting for the train. Uh, and he was on his way to take his four-year-old and his six-year-old daughter home before he headed off to work. Uh, while he was there waiting for the train with his two daughters uh, nearby, there was a man who started to convulse and collapse on the platform. And Mr. Autry, along with two other women, headed over to where he was at, where the gentleman was that collapsed, uh, to help and render aid. Uh, the gentleman who had collapsed was named Cameron Hollipeter. Uh, he was 20 years old, and they were able to help him to get back to his feet. 
Uh, it seemed like he maybe didn't have enough seizure. And they thought that when he was steady that they would move back, and, and then he went into convulsing again. And unfortunately, because of the seizure that he was having that, that hit him again, he stumbled off of the platform and fell down between the tracks of the oncoming train. Uh, the number one train was heading, uh, the lights appeared in the tunnel, was heading that way, and then Mr. Autry was faced with a split-second decision. What would he do? And he decided to make one. He jumped down from the platform and placed his body over Mr. Hollerpepper's body to press him down to what was then about a one-foot space. Uh, his heart was pounding as he was pressing him down. Uh, fortunately, I guess the conductor saw what was happening and pulled the brake on the train. Unfortunately, because of the momentum of the train, uh, it could not stop in the distance to not pass over them. And so five cars rolled over the tops of their heads. Uh, it was so near to the top of his head that he was wearing one of those knit caps that you wear in the winter, a light blue one, and one of the axles from the train rubbed right across it as it passed over his head. Uh, of course, all the onlookers who were waiting for the number one train as well screamed because they, of course, felt or, or thought that, well, two people just died as they were run over by this train. Uh, and probably had died. When he, when he heard the screaming, uh, after the train had stopped and there was silence enough for them to hear, he screamed out to the crowd, we're okay down here. We're okay. And then he said, please uh, let my two daughters up there know that their father is still alive. And almost automatically, as without prompting, the entire group of people who were waiting for the number one train uh, and awe and wonder responded with applause to what had just happened. That's the first story. Second story comes from us, not from New York, but a little bit further south in a more warmer region from Miami. It happened in, a couple of years ago in February of 2016. It was a Thursday, February 18th, if you don't remember what day it was on. Uh, in Miami-Dade County, the authorities had been called. The fire department came out because there was a fire in the apartment of a lady by the name of Erica Rosello. Uh, and uh, a neighbor had reported to authorities that the reason that he had called was because he had bumped into her in the hallways, in the apartment complex's hallway where he had lived as her neighbor, and that on the way out, as they were heading out, he had noticed that there was smoke coming from under her door, and he asked her if there was a fire going on in her apartment, to which she responded, no. It's not a fire. He then went on to ask her if anyone was inside the apartment, and she said, yes, my uh, six-year-old daughter is inside the apartment. And it was then that he went and pulled the fire alarm and alerted and called 911. Uh, the fire and rescue uh, department came out. The firefighters broke in through a bedroom window in the apartment, and there they found a, a young girl passed out from smoke inhalation uh, and who was six years old and rescued her and brought her out and saved her from the fire. Well, they took her to the hospital, and after a period of time, she did make a full recovery. Uh, but while the daughter was in the hospital, uh, the grandmother ended up showing up as the next of kin to be notified, and she called her daughter, Erica, and asked her, hey, you need to come to the hospital. Your daughter is alive, and they have rescued her, and she's going to be okay. Uh, and so she made her way to the hospital, but when she made her way to the hospital, there were some other people waiting for her there besides her mother. The police were waiting for her, and so they arrested her, and she was charged with neglect of a child that following Saturday. It's interesting that when she appeared in court, she was 
crying tears. Uh, and she ended up saying that the reason she told her mother that the reason that she didn't try to rescue her daughter was because she just assumed or thought that she was already dead, so she didn't try to make an effort to rescue her to get out of the house. Now, those are the two stories I wanted to share with you. And after hearing both stories, I simply have one question. If you had a choice, which of the two people would you want to be? Whose example would you choose to follow? Now, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to ask you to poll, poll you by asking you to raise your hand. Just in your mind, if you had a choice to be one of those two people, that is, follow their example, whose example would you want to follow? Now, without asking you to raise your hands, I'm going to venture here a guess. I'm going to guess that you would prefer to follow the example of the man in New York than the woman in Miami. And I believe that you would choose that because you recognize something that's happening in these two real people's lives that happened in real events here in the United States. That in one case, what we see is a person who meets a stranger, is in a desperate situation, puts his own life at risk, that he sacrifices himself for the good of another. And in the other case, we see someone who, although uh, should be doing the same thing, chooses not to do that and acts with self-interest. And that's why we choose one over the other. Because somewhere inside of you, there is a value that you have, that you value the idea, at least I believe you do, value the idea of, of someone uh, who acts for the best interest out of, of another at personal cost himself is a good thing. And when you see someone who acts without care for another, especially when a life is in danger, and they have the ability to help, and they choose not to, but act in their own self-interest, that is, out of selfishness to save themselves when they could have done something to save another, that we don't look at that as a positive thing in life. And the question would be, well, why does the first story appeal to us over the second? Well, some might say at least there was a research done by a group from Berkeley, and they looked at some, some uh, case studies, and they put people through this to try to get at this idea of why would people make these type of sacrifices. And they came away looking at brain chemistry, and they talked about the kind of feelings and things that happen in the brain. They said, listen, it's when a person has compassion and feels that, that they move in that direction to help others in need. And, and, and that could be part of the answer. A psychologist by the name of Dr. Gordon, Amy Gordon, says that part of it may be the reason that many people include in their definition of love, sacrificing is part of that very definition of what it means to truly love. And you can look at it from that angle, and I would say that could be true as well. But from a biblical perspective, I believe that there's something much more fundamental that what you've experienced or the reason why you chose one story over the other points to something that's true about humanity, that, that is much more fundamental to who we are and why we operate in that way, despite what culture we may come from when we see true sacrifice for the benefit of another. The book of Genesis simply tells us at the very beginning of the Bible that all human beings, not just kings, are made in the divine image. And because we bear the divine image, then there are things about us that want to be like what God is like. And so because we're made in that image, that's why we, at some level, esteem one thing over the other thing. Perhaps that's the reason that even though we might, might ourselves in our own lives, though we don't often always live up to our own standards of goodness, you know, we all have some inward standard of what we consider to be a good life, a moral person, and we have that standard. And we may ourselves not live up to it at times, and that's why we're disappointed with ourselves. 
But even though we might not live up to our own standard of goodness, when we see others meet that standard, we esteem that. Say, yes, we affirm that, like they did at the railroad. Just out of a, all of a sudden, everybody started to just applause. No one prompted and put a sign up that said, please applaud this. This is a great thing that was just done. People just did that, right? And they probably had all kinds of faith systems. They saw it, they recognized it, and something in them said, that is good. And so they applauded. And so we see the same kind of thing. Even though they themselves may not be living that or may not have done it themselves, they saw it, they recognized it, and they were attracted to it, and thus they applauded it. They validated it as something good. And I say that is because we all bear the image of God. Now, the natural question would be, well, how do we know that God is actually like that? How do we know that that's God's character? How do we see that God actually acts in that way? And that's what we see today in today's text. So the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to the church at Philippi. As Pastor Mike covered last week, and he alluded to this, talked about it, this church uh, at Philippi is struggling with a variety of things. Uh, there's opposition from the outside. He says early in chapter 1, he says, listen, not only has it been appointed to you to believe in the Lord, but you've also been appointed to suffer for his name. There, there are those who are posing from the outside. And because when, when, there's a, when you're a group or a team and you're together and there's pressure coming from the outside, sometimes that has a tendency to mess up the relationships on the inside. We see that in chapter 2, that there are some relationships that are in friction, particularly two women in the later part of chapter 2 uh, who are part, who've been working in the ministry with Paul, and they're not getting along. And so Paul is concerned about the unity in the church, and so he writes to them about that. But in the midst of writing them about unity, in order to preserve that internal uh, team, con to cohesiveness together, he lets us have a glimpse of the character of God. We see that in verses 5 through 11. Here, what has been sometimes referred to as the Christ hymn. So let me read that to you, chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. We read Paul's words. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, in the text, if you were to follow the argument of the text in the Philippians, you would realize that what Paul actually is doing here by looking at the life of Jesus in this way, in a succinct form, poetically put in, so they wonder whether or not this really is a hymn earlier than Paul. Did Paul really write this? And there's big thoughts about that, and a lot of debate whether or not it was Paul. But the point in Paul's argument here, his main point is the humility of Christ, because that's the attitude that he wants to see in the believers at Philippi. And so his main thrust is humility, the humility of Jesus. But in looking at the humility of Jesus while talking about that, we also get a chance to see what God is like by talking about how Jesus acted, his mindset, his thoughts, how he viewed himself, and how he acted as a result of that in light of what was placed before him gives us a window into what kind of being is God. And so we see that in the text. So let me unpack the text just quickly here, uh, and we see this uh, in verse 6. 
Starting off in verse 6 where he tells us, Paul starts off by reminding the believers that Jesus, uh, kind of in that kind of way that John talks about in John chapter 1, uh, he reminds us that Jesus, before uh, he came to be a human being, was the word of God, that he shared full equality with God the Father, that Jesus was just as much God as God the Father is God because there's only one God who eternally exists in three persons. So he says, you need to remember that Jesus had the status, the, the, the position of God. He is equal to God in, in his being. Uh, and, and as a result of that, what's interesting is what Jesus does with this status because what Paul is implying here is by him being God, that means there are certain things that are due to him as God. That is that he has certain rights, he has certain privileges, he has a certain status that belongs to him because of him being God. As his position in the universe, uh, as his being, there are certain things that go with being God. And he's saying all those things that go with being God are due to Jesus. But he says, notice, if you look in the text there, what Jesus does with that. Uh, Jesus doesn't use his status his rights, his privileges as something to assert himself, to say to himself, listen, Father in the divine council, I know humans need redemption, but listen, I'm God, I'm God. So, you know, I don't really need to, you know, lower myself down to where they are to help them. Let's, let's, let's do this another way. Let's get this worked out. We'll just pick somebody and work through them. It says, no, his attitude wasn't like that. Instead, it says, the text actually says, he made himself Nothing. He, he didn't treat it as though uh, his position was something to be cling to. That is, he didn't grasp for it, to hold on to it, to say, I, I, I'm God, I should stay up here. No, he used it in a different way. He said, no, because he is God, because he does have these rights, because he does have these privileges, it was an opportunity for him to use that, leverage that on the behalf of others so that he could serve them. And so the text goes on, notice in verse 7 and 8, he goes on and says in the text, he took on the form of a servant, and then he became like one of us. He became a human being. Jesus, although God had the rights of God, the status of God, the privilege of God, did not cling to his rights, but used his rights and saw that as an opportunity to serve and help others. And so he lowered himself, coming in the incarnation. And not only did he lower himself in the sense of coming down from status of creator to join with the created in the form of a servant, but he even took the lowest status among those whom he had created. Notice what the text says. He went on to the lowest social status that you could get at the time. He died a death, and not any death, but the most shameful of deaths. He died on a cross. Now, in his own culture of the day, for us, because of veneration and because of our appreciation for what Jesus has done and because we're at this point in church history, when we see a cross, somebody wearing it, we see it as a religious symbol. We think about it. We value it. It's important to us. But in the first century, no one would have been caught wearing a cross around their neck. They would have thought something was wrong with you if you had done that. In a good company, no one even mentioned the word cross. If you were in the higher echelons of society, you wouldn't even say the word because it was viewed as an obscenity to even mention the word. So you would never use that word in polite company, that is, if you had any social status. And so this was something that you didn't even talk about because crucifixion was only reserved for slaves. Those who had no social status at all, those whose rights had been taken away, they were counted as nothing 
Those were the ones that crucifixion was for. If you were a Roman citizen like Paul, you were beheaded. That was the way to put you to death if you broke the law. But if you were a slave, a criminal, an outsider, someone who had no value to society, to shame you, they would crucify you. And here is Jesus in obedience to God. He takes the lowest social status even as a human being, obedient to the point of death, death on the cross. Paul says, look at Jesus as God. What does he do? He doesn't cling to his rights. He gives up his rights and says, I'm going to use that so that I can serve others. He goes from the highest status to the lowest social status. That's the kind of God that we have. One commentator, I like the way he puts it. He says this. He said, uh, his equality, that is Jesus, with God, led him to view his status not as a matter of privilege, but as a matter of unselfish giving. This is the character of the biblical God, and this was the character of Christ Jesus himself. And it's Paul that because of this character that he sees that God has, God is a self-sacrificing God for the good of others. He uses that same lesson to deal with the Corinthians when he says to them, because theirs is a financial matter in Corinthians, and he says, listen, other believers are suffering. You have resources. Take what God has given to you and use that to benefit them. He says, now, when you do that, think about what God has already done in Christ. Think about what God is like. And he quotes this to him. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, that is, in his status as God, he had everything, yet for your sake he became poor. That's what happened when he became a human. You remember how he was born, don't you? He didn't have a nice bed that he was born in, but put in a feeding trough of animals with a family that was barely surviving. He didn't come rich, never owned a home, never had any status or owned anything in life. Born poor, died poor. That was Jesus' life. He says, but for your sake, so that by his poverty, you might become rich. He gave up his right in heaven, his status, his possession, so that he might become poor, so that he might lift us out of our poverty to the status of true riches, which is eternal wealth with God. See, Jesus viewed his status, his rights, his privileges, not as something to cling to his use for self-assertion or self-aggrandizement, but for an opportunity to humbly sacrifice for the good of others. Now, the rest of the text, which we won't get into for the sake of what the message is about, but what the text goes on to say, and maybe Mike Bongo will deal with this at some point, or Pastor Mike next week, but there's this idea that as a result of that, and you see in those last verses, that God vindicated Jesus, that they had determined in the court that Jesus was not the Messiah, unworthy, not who he said he was, and God overruled as the Supreme Court and said, no, your decision was wrong about Jesus he raised him from the dead, and he exalted Jesus so that Jesus now occupies a position that is greater than anyone. Notice the text says that his name is greater than any name that is named. Paul then gets explicit and says, just in case you wonder what names those might be, he gives every area that they would have thought of in the three-tiered system of the ancient world. He says all the heavenly beings, whether good or bad, all those, they're going to bow. All the people on earth, that's all the living human beings, they're going to bow. And all those under the earth, that is who those who dwell in the realm of the dead, Sheol, that place, and even those spirits who've been locked away, he says, they're all going to bow. And he said, this is so inclusive that there is a day coming that whether people believe in Jesus or not, whether they acknowledge him as, a, as not, when that day comes, everyone is going to acknowledge Jesus for who he truly is. 
everyone will bow. Everyone will kneel before him, and everyone will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father, some willingly and others unwillingly. And as one writer put it, it, will may, it may be because there's an angel's hand on their shoulders forcing them down into a kneeling position, but they all will bow. And so he is exalted. But what's wonderful about this text, what lets us see is what kind of God we have. He's not a God that says, listen, I'm God. I'm just going to stay up here and uh, we'll try to work from a distance with you guys that y'all are kind of dirty and I'm clean. But he's a God that sacrifices his own rights, that comes down and gets in the middle of our mess to serve us so that he can sacrifice and give up what he has so that we might benefit and be blessed. That's why when we see it in other people, we are attracted to it because somewhere inside of us, we know that that's what God is like. And we see that, and that's because, because we were made in his image. We know that that's what we ought to be like. And so we want that even if at times we fail to live up to that standard. And that's why sacrifice is beautiful. It's beautiful because when we see it in other people, like the man in New York, we get a glimpse of like, that's what God is like. That's right there. That's it. That's the kind of God we have. That's who God is. He's like that. And in that moment when we do those types of things, we then live like God. So how does the Christian community show the character of God, that beauty of God's character that we see in Christ displayed so clearly? We see it in this. Paul says this in the text in verses 1 through 4 that we read earlier. He says, we do it by maintaining unity in the church. And he says, the way that you maintain unity, what's, what's necessary, the prerequisite for that is humility a humility of attitude. But that humility doesn't stay as an inward attitude. It manifests itself in how we interact with each other through, just like Jesus, living sacrificially for one another. That's the way that we do it. We maintain unity by having humility that comes out in sacrificial living. Notice what the text says. Go back to verses 3 and 4. Let me remind you, Paul here, sometimes he gets theological and we have to unpack it. This time, Paul gets just practical. He said, let me just put it down on B-flat for you. Here it is, verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. I think that's pretty clear. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul says, listen, there's a couple things that need to go on. First, there's an internal attitude. This is not just talking about having a, a, a thought in your mind. This is a way of thinking. This is a pattern of life. You're going to order your world around this kind of concept, that your normal behavior will be that you will always look at others as better than yourself. You're going to put others above yourself. You're going to say, I'm not going to think more highly of myself than I ought to, as he says, to another church, but think soberly about myself and rightly. And when it comes to other believers, I'm going to value them more than I value myself. And that's my normal way of operating in relationships. That is a way of operating. And because I value you more than I value myself, then when it comes to this issue of needs, I'm not going to operate out of selfish motives. I'm not going to operate out of always thinking about myself. Because I care about you and I value you even more than I value myself, then I'm going to put your needs first. That doesn't mean that I'm not going to take care of my needs. Notice the tension in the text. He says not only look out for your interests. That is, you've got to take care of your stuff. But at the same time, there is a reality that there ought to be in the Christian community different than the world, that there is an attitude of I'm going to always try as best to my ability to esteem and put others' needs before my own. 
That's the kind of place that Paul says that we ought to be as a church. We're not the people who are are characterized that when someone comes in from the outside, that they would use the word selfish about us. That, that, That should never be a word that should describe the Christian community. That should be a label that should never fit who we are. No one should ever be able to say that that's a selfish group of people there. Now, when they look at us and how we interact, they ought to be able to say, no, that's a selfless group of people there. We see this in the lives of various Christians. There's a story told about a gentleman who works up in uh, Boston, Massachusetts. He's a doctor. Uh, He works out for Harvard uh, back in the early 2000s. I don't know if he still is. He was heading up their infectious disease program at Harvard Medical School and doing some other work at a local hospital. And he spent several months a year, like two months or two or three months out of the year where he worked there. And then uh, for a variety of, for most of the other months of the year, he would travel to Haiti and he would use his ability to go down and care for people in Haiti. And he did that because he said his faith was compelling him to do that. His faith in Jesus was compelling him to move in this direction, to be able to care for those who others might have viewed as, hey, because these people are poor in this country, they don't really have a lot, they're disposable people. He says, but because of what I believe, because of who I know, I need to go down and use what I have to minister to them. And because of his life, not because he was looking or seeking glory, not because he was trying to do it, just he was simply trying to be sincere and uh, consistent with what he believed, uh, there was a, a Pulitzer Prize winning author by the name of Tracy Kidder who caught attention and found out about his life and decided, you know what, that's something worth writing about. People need to know about that. And so he, he picked up and decided to write a book about him, and in 2004, that book was published. But what was interesting, what Kidder said about uh, Dr. Paul Farmer, he said this, He said, it's not as though he was doing some, what he's doing is somehow inhuman or superhuman. It's intensely human. When you hang out with Paul, you begin to think that altruism is normal. And the other stuff that we tend to think of as part of human nature, whether that is greed, selfishness, mendaciousness, that those are things that are abnormal. It's just another way of seeing the world tilt around. See, when we as believers really understand what Christ has done and what kind of God we have, it ought to transform the way we live. Now, does that mean that always that it's going to be that that means I'm going to go to the mission field? No, this way of living should, should be seen in all varieties of forms in our lives. Sometimes it may look like this. Let me give you a few examples from what I've seen in our own church family over the years that I've been here. A few examples. Sometimes I've seen it in, in church families where I've talked to a family and they've talked about, hey, listen, uh, I'm married. I don't get along with the in-laws. We have a tense relationship. Not my best. I don't necessarily like them. They don't necessarily like me. But my spouse likes to go see their family. And so I, because of my faith in Jesus, sacrifice to go and be with this other person's family, not because I have this best relationship with them, but because I love my spouse and I care about them and because I believe in Jesus and that's the right thing to do. So they go. They sacrifice and they go and be a part of that family. I've seen it in one case where there was a single mother in our church family. Uh, she was at a point in her life where a few days a week she needed, uh, if I remember correctly, she needed someone to pick up her kid after school for a few days. Uh, she didn't have family to help do that. And so one of the families in our church decided to become her family. And they said, although your family can't do it, we'll do it for you. And so for a long period of time, several days a week, they went and they picked up this kid after school, took him, fed him, and kept him until his mother was able to get off and work. 
Sacrifice, sacrifice. I, I've seen it in the way, uh, in the sense of one, of one of the big things that I saw in our church family a number of years ago was there was a brother in our church. He was having some health concerns. Uh, and he got to a point where his health, where he needed a transplant, an organ transplant. That, that's a tall order. And where he fell on the list, he was going to have to be waiting, and there was a real risk that he could pass away. And what was interesting is when that need became known, something unique and special happened in this church. Some people who were part of our church family went to get tested. And they went to see if they were a match. And when a couple of them found out, one of them decided to go through the surgery and give that organ to that other brother. And you know what happened? He's still living today. Sacrifice like Jesus. I've seen it in our church family where there have been uh, a, a child who came up who needed a family. He, here was this baby or this young child, and, and, and they didn't have someone to care for them. And, and as a result, someone in our church family said, hey, we have space in our hearts, and we have space in our homes. We'll love them. We'll care for them. We'll make room for them. Come, let them be a part of our family. And they took them into their home, and that's no easy task because that's long-term commitment. That's long-term sacrifice, but they did it because of their faith in Jesus. There's a compassion board out there, and I've seen at times where we've had in our church family where people have put compassion needs up, and people have said, I will give up money that belongs to me rightly so that I can help meet somebody else's need and give to them so that they might have. Even though it's mine and I have the right to it and to use it because God allowed me to earn it and I can use it on my own personal uh, things that I want. No, I'm going to do without so that someone else could have. There's a sister in our church who had fallen ill who had been attending our church and for whatever reasons was going on in her family, she had no one to take care of her. She had fallen, I think it was cancer that she had. She had needed long-term care. Uh, and she was getting ready to pass away. And so one of the sisters of our church made it her personal ministry to care for the sister. And so every day she went to visit her. Every day. And she was more faithful to her than her own children. And she sat with her and sat with her and sat with her all the way up until the very moment she died. Christian love, Christian sacrifice, living out the life of Jesus. There have been those in our church family, there have been situations where there are people who come from college or various other places and they come in our church family and they needed a place to stay in. And someone in our church family said, that need is mine. We have room in our home. Come, stay with us. We'll make you part of our family until you're ready to go back where you are. And they opened up their home and they sacrificed. There was a point, uh, at different points, uh, there was one recently here in the last couple of semesters, I had a I had a small group that it grew beyond the size that it was. And so I called one of the brothers up and I said, he and his wife, and I said, hey, listen, here's the reality of it. We have a group that's too large. We need some, someone to step up. I know you're busy. I, I know you're serving. Uh, but I'm asking you to take on a different role. Would you be willing to, to step up and help out so that others can grow in their faith in Christ? They said, let's pray about it. We're going to pray about it. And they, they prayed about it, they came back and said, we would love to take advantage of this opportunity so that we're going to sacrifice so that others may know Christ better. They sacrifice. One of the things I love that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, he, he says this and he sums it up for us because there in Corinthians, in the church of Corinth, you remember they had all kinds of problems there. And they even got to the point where they were suing each other. So, you know, you, you didn't paint my kitchen like I told you to, and uh, you didn't pay me the money or something happened in that. So I just take you to court, Mr. Christian, Miss Christian, and I'm going to sue you right out here in the court. And Paul says, as a believer now, because of your faith in Jesus Christ, because of your relationship, and because of what kind of God you have, ought it not be better that you just suffer the wrong done to you, let go of your rights, and, and take that wrong against you so that the name of Jesus might, might not be shamed? 
And when we see that in church families, when people say, I've been wronged and I have a right to pursue that wrong, but I will withhold that right because of Christ and for his sake, then in those moments, aren't we living like Jesus? Now, that's important because there's a reality that whatever behavior you're cultivating in your life, there may be times and moments in your life when you will be called upon to make a a decision that is a life-altering decision. But whatever direction you've been living your life in at that point in your life, you should not expect in that moment that somehow you're going to muster up the the, the know-how, the will to act differently than you've already cultivated. And so Paul encourages us to cultivate this type of behavior because there might be those types of moments that you might be presented with, you might be appointed to that, to suffer in this way, that when those moments come, it won't have to be a choice because you've already been living that way. Such was the case of a man in Florida. There was a gentleman by the name of Gary Griffith a few years back. He went down to Florida, and he decided to take a skydiving class. I do not vote for skydiving, but he did. He liked adrenaline, so whatever. He went and took a skydiving class. And he was jumping with an instructor by the name of Michael Costello, who was an experienced instructor and jumper. And on this particular jump, they were jumping in tandem, uh, some unfortunate things uh, happened as they were jumping. So they jumped out of the plane, and I don't know where they were in the air, but they got to the first place that you were supposed, whatever elevation that was, that they were supposed to pull the first chute. And so, you know, the instructor pulled the first chute. Nothing happened. The chute did not deploy. Well, that's okay, that's okay, that's okay. You're, you're plummeting towards the ground at breakneck speed. You see the ground coming quickly. And the wonderful thing is that when you jump out of a plane, you don't only have a second chute because things can't happen with that first one, right? So they pulled on the second one. Same situation. It did not deploy. They then began to spin uncontrollably towards the ground, and because the instructor was uh, very experienced, he was able to stabilize them and get them stabilized to where they were falling at a, at a, a right way, uh, and, and, and Griffith on the bottom and Michael on the top as the instructor. But as they neared the ground, Michael did something unexpected. He wrapped his arms and legs tight around them so that their weight shifted, and he ended up on the bottom. And they landed on the ground. And when he did that, Griffith's life was saved because Michael absorbed the blow so that he could live. Brothers and sisters, that's Christian living because that's exactly what Jesus did for us. He absorbed the blow so that we might live. And so Paul encourages us to live that same way as Christians in our daily lives. I think it was Paul who said at the beginning of Romans chapter 12, after he transitions out of this long theological debate, he said, present yourselves as what? Living sacrifices to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. Now, I have to ask, because I know in my own life, maybe this is not true in your life, so I may be looping you in with me. If it's not true of you, don't worry about it. But I struggle with this at times. I struggle. I struggle to live this kind of way. And the question is, why do we struggle? Dr. Gordon, in her article, she goes on and she suggests this reason. She said this, particularly in the U.S., we are raised with the belief that we need to be true to ourselves. See, there's this narrative going on in the back of culture that's being repeated in various ways, in various forms, that's being sold to us. And it's saying to us, put your interests first. It's about you. 
You can have it your way. That's what it's saying. Put your interests first. And if you're not careful, you hear that so much that somewhere on a deep heart level, you just embrace it. I just embrace it. And it becomes a value that we have that we're not even cognizant of, but we're operating off of it in life. And that's why it becomes difficult when we're presented with an opportunity to sacrifice our time, our energy, our money, or our plans for the good of another person. But the Christian is called to a new way of living because you're not the same human being you you were before. When you came to faith in Jesus, you became something new. I know you don't fully see it yet, but you are already new. You were already created new. God did something miraculous in your life when you came to faith in Jesus. You were recreated. You were made alive in Jesus Christ. And that's going to ultimately be seen at when uh, God raises us from the dead or those who are caught up when he appears and transformed. That, that process will be complete. But you're already new. You're part of a new humanity that is headed up by Christ. And because that's already true of you, Paul says, simply live consistent with what you already are. And so he says this. He, John goes on, the apostle John puts it this way. He says this, whoever says, I'll confirm what Paul says, because you are new, then you are to live in Christ. We get a chance to move from just seeing what God is like to showing the world what God is like by doing that as a church. And what is it that people will ultimately see? The Apostle John goes in the letter, and he's very clear. He says, this is what they'll see. He said, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. What they're going to see is what real love looks like. Now, there's a narrative going on and definitions in our culture about what love is, and there's all types of definitions out there about what people think love is. But God has already defined for us what true love is. Sacrificial living is loving living. And so the Bible calls us, as John goes on to say, he calls us to live a life of love. Notice what he says in the text later. He says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. See, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, then God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And isn't that what the world is crying out for? True, real love? Perhaps you remember the song from 1965 by Jackie DeSantis when she wrote these words or sang these words. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just too little of. See, what the world needs now is love, sweet love, not just for some, but for everyone. The, world, the love that the world is yearning for, this sacrificial type of love that is the very character and nature of God, he's already given it in giving his son, Jesus Christ. But the only way that they're going to know that and see that is if us, the church, shows it to them. The ultimate beauty of sacrifice is that we get to see the character of God 
And if we will do what Paul says, Paul says, don't do anything from selfish ambition. Don't operate out of self-concern and self-motive and selfishness. But in, but in humility, count others as better than yourselves. If you have that mind, that way of operating, that you won't look only to your own interests, but you'll care about the, other, the interests of others uh, as more important than yourself, then we as a community of believers will become a place where the love of God and this sacrificial living will be clearly seen. And what will we gain by this? Here's what we will gain, Paul has told us. There will be unity in the church, and we will have a credible witness in the world. That's what we'll gain, brothers and sisters. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the reality of your word, the truth of your word. I thank you for your example, for letting us know what kind of God you are. We think about John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And the very next words are astounding, that he gave his only unique son. That, Lord, because of love, that is your very nature and character, you are giving God a sacrificing God, a God who's willing to come down and get in the middle of our mess to serve and help us. And Father, we thank you. Because in those moments when we see those selfless acts, like the one of Michael Costello or the one of Wesley Autry in New York, when we see those, we're reminded of what you're truly like and what we were created for, because we were created to image you into the world, to reflect your character into the world in physical form. And so, Lord, when we see those, we get a chance to glimpse of what we should be living like. Please help us by the power of your spirit to live consistently like that because we are alive in Christ Jesus. We pray that in his name. Amen.